Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome. To Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Farfetched Fables. Welcome to show number nine. I hope you're having a good week, much like mine. We have a bit of a bumper show for you today, with not two but three stories from some amazing authors. So sit back, relax, make sure your favourite beverage is close to hand. Let's listen to some stories. First up, we're going to hear A Night in the Tropics by Geoffrey Ford. Geoffrey is an American writer whose works have spanned genres including fantasy, science fiction and mystery. He's a graduate of Binghamton University, where he studied with the novelist John Gardner. He lives in southern New Jersey and teaches writing and literature at Brookdale Community College. He's also taught at the Summer Clarion Workshop for science fiction and fantasy writers. He's contributed stories, essays and interviews to various magazines – you can learn more at his website, wellbuiltcity.com. Links on the Triple F website, of course. The story is read for you by the uber-talented Pete Nixon. Pete is a full-time mailman, father and husband. He edited, produced and partially narrated Green Eggs and Horror, a horror short story anthology inspired by Dr. Zeus stories that can be found at, surprise, surprise, greeneggsandhorror.com. So, take a listen. A Night in the Tropics The first bar I ever went to was The Tropics. It was and still is situated between the grocery store and the bank along Higby Lane in West Islip. I was around five or six, and my old man would take me with him when he went there to watch the giant games on Sunday afternoon. While the men were all at the bar drinking, talking, giving Y.A. Tittle a piece of their minds, 
I'd roll the balls on the pool table or sit in one of the booths in the back in color. The jukebox always seemed to be playing Somewhere Beyond the Sea by Bobby Darin while I searched for figures, the way people do with clouds, in the swirling cigar and cigarette smoke. I didn't go there for the hard-boiled eggs the bartender proffered after making them vanish and pulling them out of my ear, or for the time spent sitting on my father's lap at the bar, sipping a ginger ale with a cherry in it, although both were welcome. The glowing, bubbling beer signs were fascinating. The foul language was its own cool music. But the thing that drew me to the tropics was a thirty-two-foot vision of paradise. Along the south wall of the place, stretching from the front door back to the entrance of the bathrooms, was a continuous mural of a tropical beach. There were palm trees with coconuts and stretches of pale sand sloping down to a shoreline where the serene sea rolled in lazy wavelets. The sky was robin's egg blue, the ocean six different shades of aquamarine. All down the beach, here and there, frozen forever in different poses, were island ladies wearing grass skirts, but otherwise naked, save the flowers in their hair. Their smooth brown skin, their breasts, their smiles were ever inviting. At the center of the painting, off at a distance on the horizon, was depicted an ocean liner with a central funnel issuing a smudgy trail of smoke. Between that ship and the shore, there bobbed a little rowboat with one man at the oars. I was entranced by that painting and could sit and look at it for long stretches at a time. I'd inspected every inch of it, noticing in the bend of the palm leaves the sweep of the women's hair, the curling edges of the grass skirts, which way the breeze was blowing and at what rate. I could almost feel it against my face. The cool, clear water, the warmth of the island light lulled me into a trance. I noticed the tiny crabs, shells, starfish on the beach, the monkey peering out from within the fronds of a palm. The most curious item, though, back in the shadows of the bar, just before paradise came to an end by the bathroom door, was a hand pushing aside the wide leaf of some plant as if it was you standing at the edge of the jungle, spying on that man in the rowboat. Eventually, as time went on and life grew more chaotic, my father stopped going to the tropics on Sundays. Supporting our family overtook the importance of the giants. And until my mother passed away only a few years ago, he worked six days a week. When my own bar years began, I never went there, as it was considered an old man's bar. But the memory of that mural stayed with me through the passing seasons. At different times in my life when things got hectic, its placid beauty would come back to me, and I'd contemplate living in paradise. A couple of months ago, I was in West Islip, visiting my father, who still lives alone now in the same house I grew up in. After dinner, we sat in the living room and talked about the old times and what had changed in town since I'd been there last. Eventually, he dozed off in his recliner, and I sat across from him contemplating his life. He seemed perfectly content, but all I could think about were those many years of hard work drawing to a close in an empty house, in a neighborhood where he knew no one. I found the prospect depressing, so as a means of trying to disperse it, I decided to go out for a walk. It was a quarter after ten on a weeknight, and the town was very quiet. I traveled up onto Higby Lane and turned down toward Montauk. As I passed the tropics, I noticed the door was open and the old beer sign in the window was bubbling. No lie, the jukebox was softly playing Bobby Darren. Through the window, I could see that the year-round Christmas lights bordering the mirror behind the bar were lit. On a whim, I decided to go in and have a few. 
hoping that in the decades since I'd last been there no one had painted over the mural. There was only one patron, a guy sitting at the bar who was so wrinkled he looked just like a bag of skin with a wig, wearing shoes, pants, and a cardigan. He had his eyes closed, but he nodded every now and then to the bartender, who towered over him, a huge, bloated bulk of a man in a t-shirt that only made it a little past the crest of his gut. The bartender was talking almost in whispers, smoking a cigarette. He looked up when I came in, waved and asked me what I wanted. I ordered a VO and water. When he laid my drink down on the coaster in front of me, he said, Play much hoop lately? And smirked. I'm no paragon of physical fitness myself these days, so I laughed. I took it as a joke on all three of us, beat up castaways in the tropics. After paying, I chose a table where I could get a good look at the south wall, but sat facing the distant bathroom doors instead of rudely turning my back on my barmates. To my relief, the mural was still there, almost completely intact. Its colors had faded and grown dimmer with the buildup of tobacco smoke through the years, but I beheld paradise once again. Someone had drawn a mustache on one of the hula ladies, and the sight of the indiscretion momentarily made my heart sink. Otherwise, I just sat there, reminiscing and digging the breeze in the palms, the beautiful ocean, the distant ship, that poor bastard still trying to reach the shore. It came to me that the town should declare the mural a historic treasure or something. My reverie was interrupted when the old guy pushed back his barstool and slouched toward the door. I watched him as he passed, his eyes glassy, his hand in the air trembling. Okay, Bobby, he barked. And then he was out the door. Bobby, I said to myself, and looked over at the bartender as he started wiping down the bar. When he looked back at me, he smiled, but I turned quickly away and concentrated on the mural again. A couple of seconds later, I snuck another look at him, because it was beginning to dawn on me that I knew the guy. He was definitely somebody from the old days, but time had disguised him. I went back to paradise for a few seconds, and there, in the sun and the ocean breeze, I remembered. Bobby Lennon had been what my mother called a hood. He was a couple years ahead of me in school, and light years ahead of me in life experience. I'm sure by the time he was in the sixth grade, he'd gotten laid, gotten drunk, and gotten arrested. By high school, he was big. And though always in kind of sloppy shape with a gut, his biceps were massive and the insatiable look in his eyes left no doubt that he could easily kill you with little remorse. His hair was long and stringy, never washed, and he wore, even in summer, a black leather jacket, jeans, a beer-stained white t-shirt, and thick, steel-toed black boots that could kick a hole in a car door. I'd seen him fight guys after school by the bridge, guys who were bigger than him, cut with muscles, athletes from the football team. He wasn't even a good boxer. All his swings were these wild roundhouse haymakers. He could be bleeding out of his eye and been kicked in the stomach, but he was relentlessly fierce, and wouldn't stop till his opponent was on the ground unconscious. He had a patented throat punch that put the school's quarterback in the hospital. Lennon fought someone almost every day. Sometimes he'd even take a swing at a teacher or the principal. He had a gang, three other misfits in leather jackets, nearly as mean but minus their leader's brains, Whereas Lennon had a wicked sense of humor and a kind of sly intelligence, his followers were confused lunkheads who needed his power and guidance in order to be anyone at all. His constant companion was Chocho, who, when a kid in Brooklyn, had been hung by a rival gang to his older brothers. His sister had found him before he died and cut him down. 
Ever since he wore the scar, a melted flesh necklace he tried to hide with the chain of a crucifix. The lack of oxygen to his brain had made him crazy, and when he spoke in a harsh whisper, usually no one understood him except Lennon. The second accomplice was Mike Wolfe, whose favorite pastime was huffing paint remover in his grandfather's shed. He actually had a lupine look to his face, and with his pencil mustache and sort of pointed ears, reminded me of oil can Harry. Then there was Johnny Mars, a thin, wiry guy with a high-pitched, annoying laugh you could light a match on, and a strong streak of paranoia. One night, because of some perceived slight by a teacher, he shot out all of the windows on one side of the high school with his old man's twenty-two rifle. Lennon and his gang scared the shit out of me, but I was lucky, because he liked me. My connection to him went back to when he was younger and played Little League football, before he fell totally down the chute into delinquency. He was trouble even back then, but he was a good tackle and played hard. His problem was he didn't take direction all too well, and would tell the coaches to fuck off. This was back in the days when saying fuck meant something, and it didn't endear him to the folks in charge. One day, when he was in seventh grade, he threw a rock at a passing car up on Higby and broke the side window. The cops caught him and had him on the side of the road. My father happened to be passing by at the time, and he saw what was going on and pulled over. He knew Bobby because he had been a ref for a lot of the games in the football league. The cops told him they were going to book Lennon, and somehow my father worked it out with them to let him go. He paid the driver of the car to get his window fixed, and then drove Bobby home. For whatever reason, maybe because he never knew his own father, that incident stuck with Lennon. And although he couldn't follow the advice my old man gave him that day, and would continue to screw up, he took it upon himself to watch out for me as repayment for the kindness shown. The first time I had an inkling that this was the case, I was riding my bike through the grade school grounds on my way to the basketball courts. To get there, I had to pass by a spot where the hoods played handball against the tall brick wall of the gym. I was always relieved when they weren't there. But that day, they were. Mike Wolf, eyes red, snarling like his namesake, ran out and grabbed my bike by the handlebars. I didn't say anything. I was too scared. Joey Mazula and Stinky Steinmuller, hood hangers-on, were ambling over to join him in torturing me. Just then, Lennon appeared from somewhere with a quart bottle of beer in his hand, and he bellowed, Leave him alone! They backed off. Then he said, Come over here, Ford. He asked me if I wanted any beer, which I turned down, and then told me to hang out if I wanted to. I didn't want to seem scared or ungrateful, so I stayed for a while, sitting on the curb, watching them play handball while Johnny Mars explained how if you jerked off into a syringe and then gave yourself a shot with it and then fucked your wife, your kid would come out a genius. When I finally rode away, Lennon told me to say hello to my father. And when I was well across the field, he yelled after me, have a fucking nice summer. Lennon's interest in protecting me made it possible for me and my brother to pass through the school field after dark, whereas anyone else would have had their asses beaten. One night we ran into Lennon and his gang, there down by the woods, where Minerva Street led to the school grounds. He had a silver handgun in his belt. He told us he was waiting for a guy from Brightwaters to show up, and they were going to have a duel. For my honor, he had said, then drained his beer, smashed the bottle against the concrete opening of the sewer pipe and belched. When a car pulled up on Minerva and blinked its lights on and off twice, he told us we better get going home. 
We were almost around the block to our house when in the distance we heard a gunshot. Occasionally, Lennon would surface and either save me from some dire situation, like the time I almost got mixed up in a bad dope deal at this party, and he came out of the dark, smacked me in the side of the head, and told me to go home. He and his gang were forever in trouble with the cops. Knife fights, joy rides in hot-wired cars, breaking and entering. I know each of them did some time in the juvenile lockup out in Central Islip before I graduated. Finally, I finished high school, moved away from home to go to college, and lost track of him. Now, I was in the tropics, just coming out of a daydream of paradise and the past. And there he was, standing at my table, holding a bottle of VO, a bucket of ice, and a tumbler. Looking like something had taken him down to the gas station and put the air hose in his mouth. Don't remember me, do you? he asked. I thought it was you, I said and smiled. Bobby Lennon. I stuck my hand out to shake. He laid the bottle and bucket on the table and then reached out and shook my hand. His grip didn't have any trace of the old power. He sat down across from me and filled my glass before pouring himself one. What are you doing here? he asked. I came in to see the mural, I said. He smiled and nodded wistfully, as if he completely understood. You visiting your old man? he asked. Yeah, just in for an overnight. I saw him in the grocery store a couple of weeks ago, said Bobby. I said hi, but he just nodded and smiled. I don't think he remembers me. You never know, I said. He does the same thing with me half the time now. He laughed and asked about my brother and sisters. I told him my mother had passed away, and he said his mother had also died quite a while back. He lit a cigarette and then reached over to another table to get an ashtray. What are you up to? he asked. I told him I was teaching college and was a writer. Then I asked if he still saw Chocho and the other guys. He blew out a stream of smoke and shook his head. Nah, he said, looking kind of sad and we sat there quietly for a time. I didn't know what to say. You're a writer? he asked. What do you write? Stories and novels. You know, fiction, I said. His eyes lit up a little, and he poured another drink for each of us. I got a story for you, he told me. You asked about Chocho and the gang? I got a wild fucking story for you. Let's hear it, I said. This all happened a long time ago. After you left town, but before Howie sold the pizza place around the time Phil the Barber's kid got knocked off at the track, he said. Yeah, I remember my mother telling me about that, I said. Well, anyway, none of us, me, Chocho, Wolfie, the Martian, ever graduated high school. And we were all hanging out, doing the same old shit, only it was getting deeper all the time. We were all drinking and drugging and beginning to pull some serious capers, like once we broke into a grocery store and stole a couple of hundred dollars worth of cigarettes. Or we'd heist a car now and then and sell it to a chop shop one of Mars' relatives owned. Occasionally, we'd get caught and do a little time, a couple of months here or there. We weren't pros by any means, and so we would have to get real jobs from time to time. And, of course, the jobs sucked. One night I was in here having a few beers and this guy came in who I remembered from high school. My brother would probably remember him. Anyway, he starts talking to the bartender. Remember old man, right? Yeah, I said. He served me my first drink, a Shirley Temple. Lennon laughed and went on. 
Well, this guy was back in town, and he graduated from college with a degree in engineering, had a cushy job at Grumman, was getting married and had just bought a big house down by the bay. I overheard this and thought to myself, shit, I could go for some of that. But there was no way it was going to happen. And matter of fact, I was looking at the mural and thinking, I was like that guy in the boat and the painting there, stuck forever outside the good life. In other words, I was starting to see that outlaw scene was going to get very old very soon. Now, I'm not crying in my beer, but let's face it, me and the group didn't have much help in life. Busted homes, alcoholic parents, head problems. We're pretty fucked from the word go. It was easier for us to scare people into respecting us than it was ever going to be for them to just do it on their own. It seemed like everyone else was heading for the light, and we were still down in the shadows munching crumbs. I wanted to be on the beach, so to speak. I wanted a home, and a wife, and a kid, and long quiet nights watching the tube and holidays. As for the other guys, I don't think they got it. Shit, if God would have let them they'd still be muslin' high school kids for pocket change. Since it was clear I wasn't going to get there by regular means, I decided what we needed was one big heist, one real job in order to get the cash necessary to live in the real world. After that, I'd part company with them and move on. So I spent a long time thinking about what kind of scam we could pull. But I was blank. We'd spent so many years nickel and diamond, I couldn't get out of that head. Until one night, we were sitting at that table right over there, drinking, and a ragged, hopped-up wolfie, eyes showing almost nothing but white, mentioned something. And I thought I felt the rowboat move a few feet closer to shore. This old guy had just moved in on Wolfie's block. What is it? Over there by Minerva, Alice Road? Anyway, this old guy, blind in a wheelchair, moved in. Remember Willie Hart? The guy in high school with the plastic arm? Well... His youngest sister, Maria, who, by the way, the wolf man was banging every once in a while back in his grandfather's shed in between hits of zip-away, went to work for the old guy. She cleaned his house and would take him out for walks in his wheelchair and so forth. Maria told Wolfie that the old fart was super strange, and although he knew English and could talk it, he spoke to himself in another language she thought was Spanish. Maria, if you remember her, was no genius. And for all she knew, the guy could have been talking fucking Chinese. Anyway, she said he was kind of feeble in the head, because he had this chess set he would take out and play against himself. She asked him once if he was winning or losing, and he responded, Always losing. Always losing. What really caught her interest, though, were the pieces. She said they were beautiful, golden monsters. The guy didn't like to be disturbed in the middle of a game, but she had to ask him if they were real gold. He told her, Yes, solid gold. This set is very rare, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Very old, goes back to the 16th century. The best part of Maria's story was that he kept the set in a drawer in his hutch. No luck. So we had a blind guy in a wheelchair, with hundreds of thousands of dollars of gold without a lock. Of course I made a plan to swipe it. I had Wolf to get Maria to tell him what time she walked the guy. Mr. Desnia was his name. In the afternoon. So we could get a look at him. I thought about doing the job when they were out of the house. But in that neighborhood, during daylight hours, I knew someone would see us. We drove by them slowly a couple of days later, as she pushed him down the street. 
He was bent over in the chair, his bald head like a shelled peanut, looking thin and haggard. His hands shook slightly. He wore dark glasses, no doubt to cover his fucked-up eyes, and a black, tight-fitting get-up, like what a priest would wear, but with no white color. That's the guy with our gold, I said after we were past them. A blind guy in a wheelchair, said Mars. Jesus, he might as well just hand it over now. We decided not to wait, but do the job the next night. The cops had our prints, so we went and stole some plastic gloves from the grocery store. You know, the kind you could pick a dime up with. Told Maria we'd cut her in if she kept her mouth shut and left the back door unlocked on her way out on the night of the job. She agreed, I think because she was in love with Wolf, which will show you where her head was at. I warned the other guys, whatever they did, not to speak each other's names during the job. The plan was to get in there, cut the phone wire, put a gag over the old guy's mouth and swipe the gold. Plain and simple, no one had to get hurt. The big night came and we spent the early part of it here, in the tropics, building up our courage with shots of Jack. When it got to be about midnight, we set out in Mars Pontiac. We parked on the next street over, sucked through the yard there, and scaled this ten-foot stockade fence into Desnia's backyard. We were all a little high, and climbing over was rough. I didn't bother bringing a flashlight, because I figured if the guy was blind, we could just put the lights on. But I did bring a pillowcase to carry the gold in, and a crowbar in case Maria was wrong about the lock. Maria had left the back door open as planned. We sent Chocho in first, as usual. Then, one at a time, we entered into the kitchen. The lights were out there, and it was perfectly quiet in the house. I remember was hearing the wall clock ticking off the seconds. A light was shining in the next room over, the living room. I peeked around the corner and saw Desnia sitting in his wheelchair, a big blanket covering his legs in midsection, dark glasses on. If he could see, he would have been looking straight at me, which was a little nerve-wracking. To his left was the hutch. Let's go, I whispered. The second I spoke, he called out. Who's there? Maria? Chocho moved around behind him with a piece of duct tape for his mouth. Mars said to him, Take it easy and you won't get hurt. Wolf stood there looking confused, as if he had just come off his high. I got down on my haunches and had to open two drawers before I found the board in pieces. It struck me as odd that he didn't keep them in a box or a bag or something but the entire board was set up inside the drawer. It took only a second to swipe every one of them up and toss them in the pillowcase. I didn't bother with the board. I was just going to tell the others. Let's get out of here. When Desnia reached up and pulled the tape off his mouth, Chocho tried to lean over and stop him, but the old man drove his fist straight up, connected with Chocho under the chin, and sent him sprawling backward into the corner of the room where he knocked over a lamp and fell on his back. With his other hand... The old man flung something at Wolf that moved through the air so fast I could hardly see it. A split second later, Mike had his hand to the side of his head, and there was a sharp piece of metal sticking out of it, blood running down across his face. He went over like a ton of shit. Me and Mars were in shock, neither of us moving. When Desnia flung off the blanket and pulled out his big fucking sword, I'm not shitting you. This sword was like something out of a movie. Then he leaped out of the chair. That's when Johnny decided it was time to book. Too late, though. The old guy jumped forward into a crouch, swung that sword around and took a slice out of Mars's leg like you wouldn't believe. I mean, the blood just sort of fell out all over the place. And from the lower thigh down was hanging on by a piece of gristle.
The Martian hit the deck and started howling like a banshee. Desnia wasn't done yet, though. Following the slash on Johnny like a goddamn dancer, he twirled around toward me and swung the sword again. Luckily, I had the crowbar and held it up in front of me at the last second. It deflected the blow, but the blade still cut me on the left side of my chest. I don't know where it came from. Just an automatic reaction. I swung the crowbar and took him out at the ankles. As he went down, I looked up and saw Chocho crawling out through the open window. I dropped the crowbar, grabbed the bag tight, ran across the room and dove headfirst right behind him. Man, I wasn't even on my feet before Desney was sticking his bald head out the window, getting ready to leap through after us. We ran into the backyard, to a corner where there was a shed with a light over it, but there was that damn ten-foot fence. My first thought was to try to jump it. But forget it. He was already there behind us. He would have just slashed our asses. We backed against the fence and got ready to brawl. He walked slowly up to us, with the blade at his side, in the light from over the shed. I could see he had lost his glasses, and I don't know how he could have swung that sword the way he did, because his eyes weren't just fucked up. He had none. No eyes. Just two puckered little assholes in his head. When Desney was no more than three feet away, Chocho held up the crucifix that hung around his neck, like in a vampire movie, to protect himself. The old guy laughed without hardly a sound. Then he lifted the sword slowly, brought it to Chocho's neck, and with a flick of the wrist just nicked him so he started to bleed. With that, Desney had dropped the sword and turned around. He took two steps away and his legs buckled. He went down like a sack of turnips. In the distance, I could hear Johnny still screaming like mad, and above his racket, the sound of the police siren. Chocho and I used the side of the shed to scrabble up over the fence, and we got away with the gold. Sounds crazy, right? The old man turning into fucking Zorro at the drop of a hat? But I'm telling you, it was serious. The Martian died that night on the old man's living room rug. The blade had sliced an artery, and he bled out before the ambulance could get there. On top of that, the old man was found dead from a heart attack. But get this, Wolfie got away. While we were out in the backyard up against the fence, he came to, pulled the metal thing out of his head, and split before the cops got there. We left Mars's car where it was, and he took the rap for the whole caper. Maria kept her mouth shut. We all went into hiding, laying low for a while. I had the chess pieces stashed under a loose floorboard in my mother's bedroom. What was good was that I was pretty sure no one else even knew Desnia had them to be stolen. I thought if we just chilled for a while, I could fence them and we'd be set. Still, I was spooked by what had happened. Johnny's death and the way it went down, I could feel something wasn't right. Two months after the heist, I got a call at like three in the morning from Chocho. He said he wasn't supposed to call, but he couldn't take it anymore. He was having these dreams that scared him so much he couldn't sleep. I asked him what he was dreaming about, and he just said, Really evil shit. A month after that, I heard from someone that he'd finished the job they started in Brooklyn when he was a kid. Yeah, he'd hung himself in his mother's attic. The year wasn't out before both Maria and Wolf went down, too. I'd heard that he'd taken to staying in his grandfather's shed all the time. She was joining him now on a regular basis, and they had begun taking pills, lewds, and Darvon, and drinking while huffing the zip away. And that just ate what little there was of their brains. Melted that Swiss cheese like acid one night. I should have been sadder at losing all my friends. 
but instead I was just scared to death and started living the clean life, laying off the booze and dope and getting to my crappy job at the metal shop every day on time. I never even went to Cho Cho's funeral. After that year ended, I let another six months go by before I started looking around for a fence. I knew it would have to be somebody high class, who dealt in antiques, but was willing to look the other way when it came to how you acquired what you were selling. I did some studying up on the way it worked and spoke to a few connections. Eventually, I got the phone number of a guy in New York and the green light to give him a call. Nothing in person until he checked out you and the goods you claim to have. I got the pieces out from under the floorboards and really looked at them for the first time. The bigger pieces were about four inches tall, and the smaller ones, which I guess were pawns, I don't know lots about chess, three inches. They definitely seemed to be made of solid gold. Half of them were figures of monsters, each one different. The work on them really detailed. The other half, I don't know what they were, but I recognized one as being Christ. The smaller ones looked like angels. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. The day finally came when I was supposed to call the guy. I did, from the payphone in the back of Phil's barbershop. I was nervous, you know, sweating how much I was going to get, still scared at all the ill stuff that had gone down. Well, the phone rings. The guy answers. He tells me, no names. Describe what you have. So I told him, gold chess set from the 16th century. But the minute I started describing the individual pieces, the line went dead. That was it. At first, I thought it was just a bad connection, or I needed more change. I called back, but no one would pick up. Then shit started to really slide. Dreams like Cho-Cho described, and I took to drinking again. But drinking in a way I never did before. I lost my job, and on top of it all, my mother got the cancer. I was reeling, and it took me a while, like two years, to get it together, to deal with the damn gold again. Just by luck, I guess, I ran into a guy who knew this guy, a Dominican, who fenced stuff from break-ins out in the Hamptons. I met him one winter afternoon over in the parking lot at Jones Beach. Thinking it might be a setup, I only took three pieces with me. The wind was blowing like a motherfucker that day. It was like a sandstorm even in the parking lot. The guy was there when I pulled up, sitting in a shiny black Cadillac. We got out of the cars. He was short, wore sunglasses and a raincoat. We shook hands, and he asked to see what I had. I took two of the pieces out and held them up for him to see. He took one look at them and said, Isiaso, and then made a face like I was holding a couple of turds. The guy didn't say anything else. He just turned around, got in his car, and drove away. And that's the way it went in trying to fence them. I'd give it a shot, be turned down, and then get swamped in a lot of bad circumstance. Then I just wanted to unload them and take whatever I could get. Even this guy Bose, who bought gold teeth down on Canal Street in the city, wouldn't touch them. He called them La Ventoya del Dominio, and threatened to call the cops if I didn't leave his shop. It wasn't until after my mother passed away that I decided to try and find out about them. Imagine me, Bobby Lennon, failure of classes and king of detention, in the library. I don't think I'd ever been in the fucking place in my life. I started there. And you know what? I discovered I wasn't as stupid as I looked. There was some real pleasure in researching them. 
It was the only thing that offset the depression of drinking. In the meantime, old man Ryan took pity on me and gave me a job bartending here at the tropics. I barely managed to keep myself from getting too screwed up until he went home in the evening, so as to keep the job. I scoured the library, got interlibrary loans and all that good stuff, and I started to crack the story on the chess set. Then, when the internet came in, I got with that too, and over a period of long years I put it together. The set was known as The Demon's Advantage. Scholars talked about it like it was more a legend than anything that actually existed. It was supposedly crafted by this goldsmith in Italy, Dario Foresso, in 1533, commissioned by a strange cat who went by the name of Isiaso. The dude had no last name, as far as anyone could tell. Anyway, this Isiaso was from Hispanola, now the Dominican Republic. In 1503, I think it was Pope Julius III, declared Santo Domingo an official city of Christendom. It was the jumping-off place for European explorers who were headed to South and North America. Iziazo was born the year the Pope gave the two-fingered salute to the city. Our boy's father was Spanish, an attaché to the crown, there to oversee the money to be spent on expeditions. You know, basically an accountant. But his mother was a native, and here's where it gets creepy. Said to be from a long line of sorcerers, she was an adept of the island magic. Iziazo, who was supposed to be like a genius kid, learned the ways of both parents. When he's in his twenties, his old man ships him out to Rome to finish his education. He goes to universities and studies with the great philosophers and theologists of the time. It was during these years that he comes to see the battle between good and evil in terms of chess, the dark versus the light, etc., with the advantage going back and forth. Strategy was part of it, and mathematics along with faith. But, to tell you the truth, I never really completely understood what he was supposed to be getting at. Somehow, Iziazo gains wealth and power very quickly, rises to the top of the heap. No one can figure out how he came by his wealth, and those who cross him meet with weird and ugly deaths. Anyway, he has the funds to get Fereso and undertake the set. And Fereso is no slouch, an apprentice to Benvenuto Cellini, greatest goldsmith who ever lived. Many thought Fereso was his master's equal, was how one book put it. Okay, you with me? Enter Pope Paul III, Julian's successor. He's this big patron of the arts. Michelangelo worked for him at one time. He hears tell of this incredible chess set being created by Fereso, and goes to the guy's studio and checks it out. Later, he lets it be known to his underlings that he wants the chess set for himself. He sends someone to see Isiaso and the guy tells him the Pope wants to buy it off him. Isiaso has other plans. He knows the Vatican's going to be funding a university in Santo Domingo, and he tells him what he wants in exchange is passage home and a professor job at the university. I got the idea from my reading that it might have been difficult for him to get the job because he was half-native. He's surprised when the Pope's go-between says, Cool, we'll cut the deal. He doesn't know is that the Vatican has had their eye on him as a troublemaker and they want him out of Rome anyway. On the voyage home, the ship drops anchor for a day off a small, uninhabited island. Iziazo is asked if he would like to go ashore and witness a true paradise on earth. Being a curious guy, he says yes. He and a sailor go to the island in a rowboat. They explore the place, but in the middle of them looking around, Iziazo notices all of a sudden that he's alone. 
When he makes it back to the beach, he sees the other guy in the rowboat heading back to the ship. The ship pulls up anchor and splits, stranding him there. It was the plan all along. They wanted him out of Rome. They were too afraid of his supposed magic to come right out and boot his ass. So they got the chest set and got rid of him, and the legend has it that he put a curse on the chest set. Legend also has it that if you play the demon side of the board, you can never lose. You could play fucking Gary Kasparov and not lose. But at the same time, the person who owns it is doomed, cursed, screwed, blued, and tattooed. You can't give it away, you can't throw it away. Believe me, I've tried, and it's a shitstorm of misery and the dreams just get too intense. The only way to unload it is to have it stolen from you. And in the process, blood must be drawn. Die with it in your possession, and you ain't going to be seeing paradise. Now, said Lennon, what do you think of that? I swear on my mother's grave that it's all completely true. He lifted the bottle and filled each of our glasses. And the biggest kicker of all is that I dug all this up on my own. Man, I could have gotten through high school and college for Christ's sake. So, you believe in the curse? I asked. I'm not going to bore you with how many times I tried to dump the pieces, he said. You don't seem cursed, though, I said. Well, there's cursed and then there's cursed. Look at me. I'm a wreck. My liver is shot. I've been in and out of the hospital five times in the last year. They told me if I don't quit drinking, I'm going to die very soon. What about some kind of addiction center where they can treat you? I asked. I've tried it, he said. I just can't stop. It's my part of the curse. I'm in here every day, throwing back the booze. It doesn't matter what kind it is. And staring at that mural, a castaway like Iziazo. It doesn't make any sense, but I swear that's his hand in the picture. Down in the corner by the bathroom, all my attempts at relationships went south. All my plans to better myself dried up and blew away. I'm slowly killing myself, you see, he said, lifting his shirt to show me his sagging chest. The scar is right here, over my heart, and my heart is... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's poisoned. I don't know what to say, I told him. You were always kind to me when I was a kid. Thanks, he said. Maybe if I can unload the set eventually... 
That'll be at least one thing on the scale in my favor. He got up then and went behind the bar. When he came back, he was carrying a chessboard, and on it were the golden pieces. He laid it down on the table between us. Man, they're beautiful, I told him. Listen, you gotta get going home now, he said, the same as he had so many years ago. I had a couple of rough-looking characters in here the other day, and I showed them the set, told them how much it was worth and that I kept it behind the bar all the time. It's getting past midnight and there's a chance they'll show up. I know the old man let Maria see it and told her about it for the same reason I've been flaunting it lately. Maybe when they come for it, I'll get some of the old juice back like Desnia did, and we'll have a good brawl. I stood up, a little wobbly from the bottle of V.O. we'd finished. There's no other way? I asked. He shook his head. I turned and took in the mural one last time, because I knew I would never come back again. Bobby looked over, too. You know, he said. I bet you always thought that guy in the boat was trying to get to the island, right? Yeah, I said. The truth is, he's been trying to escape all these years. Those women look like women to you, but count them. There are as many as pieces in a chess set. I hope he makes it, I said, and then reached out and shook his hand. Leaving the tropics behind, I stepped onto the sidewalk and stood there for a minute to get my bearings. The night was cold, and I realized autumn was only a week away. I turned my collar up and walked along, searching my mind, without success, for the warmth from that painted vision of paradise. Instead, all I could think of was my old man, sitting in his recliner, smiling like the Buddha, while the world he once knew slowly disintegrated. I turned off Higby onto my block and was nearly home, when from somewhere away in the distance, I heard a gunshot. Have you ever been to a bar like that? It seems to describe exactly numerous pubs I've been in. Makes me think, hmm. Anyhow, on to our second tale for the show. It is The Blue Magnolia by Tony Ballantyne. Tony is the author of the Penrose and Recursion series of novels, as well as many short stories. He's been nominated for the BSFA and Philip K. Dick Awards. His latest novel, Dream London, was published in October 2013, and he's currently working on the follow-up, Dream Paris, which is due to be published in September of next year, 2015. He's also recently begun working on a series of short stories set in the recursion universe. You can find his website on the Triple F page. Just click over and have a look. It is very ably narrated for us by Anthony Babington, who looks almost but not quite exactly how you expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that it was not his idea. He does a cracking job with this story. Thank you, Anthony. Here it is. The Blue Magnolia by Tony Ballantyne. The Blue Magnolia by Tony Ballantyne. Bogart stands before the bar. Hepburn is serving drinks. Cary Grant sits in a chair nearby. You've got to choose, says Grant, his eyes hard. I can't, not now, says Hepburn, shaking her head in despair. Bogart lifts the shot glass to his lips and knocks back his whiskey in one. You can tell by his stance that he resigned himself to this moment long ago. 
He pulls back his sleeve as if to look at his watch, but his eyes never leave Hepburn's. Hepburn's dark, wide eyes, filling with tears. Oh, is that the time? He murmurs. I've got to catch my plane. He turns to leave. Hepburn calls after him. No, wait, we must... Uh. Bogart stops at the door, by the hat stand. Damn, can't find my hat. We can see it hanging there next to him. We'll mail it, says Grant. He's looking at the floor, ashamed. Don't go like this. I... I can explain, says Hepburn. No need. Why explain things to a man who's not there? He looks into the distance and speaks reflectively. I guess a man who lives his life alone is never really a part of the world. He closes the door gently as he leaves, close up on the hat. Hepburn's gift to him in happier times, from their trip to Majorca. The music swells in the background. Recognize it? It's a scene from the Blue Magnolia. Once upon a time it was a classic film, and I mean a real classic. One of the top ten greatest. Not one of these modern, hype-driven, instant classic features that leave you feeling you've spent the last two hours sitting in a bath of electric jelly watching a strobe light in an echo chamber. No. A classic with a capital C. It can't be called that now, of course. Now it's just a cheap piece of tawdry entertainment, something designed to appeal to the lowest common denominator as any modern 3D flick. And whose fault is that? I write this as a confession. I must hold up my hand and accept the blame. I destroyed the Blue Magnolia. The fault was mine. Hepburn is laughing as she hands Bogart the hat. Think of me when you wear it, she says. He puts it on and adjusts to a slight tilt. For the first time, his face splits into a smile, and Hepburn flings her arms around him in delight. Laughing, they walk through the hot, dusty streets of Majorca. Susie, the salesperson, was wearing a smart red leather suit that creaked and squeaked as the Zoom train rocked back and forth in its tube. She was watching the blue magnolia with me, an attentive smile on her face as the characters moved through their rolls on the carpeted backs of the seats before us. I'd called the shop from the office later that day, and they had retroactively arranged for her to board the train with me as I set out for work that morning. Now she turned to face me and pushed a strand of blonde hair away from her face. I've never seen this before. It's a good film. Her leather suit creaked as she spoke. A classic, I said. So, can you help me? No problem. You don't even need one of the expensive models. An entry-level machine should meet your needs. I've got one here. Susie pulled a blue, crackly box from the pocket of her red leather jacket. I looked at it in astonishment. Is that a time machine? I whispered. After a fashion, she replied, you press the button and think about what you want to be until the light comes on. The train jolted, and she swayed closer to me for a moment. She smelt of perfume and leather. I reached across and took the machine carefully in my hand. Its touch on my hand was like the feel of a fizzy drink in the mouth. I made to press the button, and she held out one hand. Payment first, she said. Do you permit the withdrawal of funds from your account? I do, I replied, and then pressed the button and thought about what I wanted to be. A red light came on. But nothing's happened! I said. All around me was the same soft cream leather of the swaying zoom tube, 
the same early morning commuters, the same flicker of movement behind the windows. Susie gave me a delightful smile. Don't worry about it, she said. Nobody ever remembers the trip. It worked. I saw the proof on channel 36B that night. I was just having a drink to congratulate myself when the phone went. My stomach sank when I heard the voice on the other end. Oh, Anderson, it's you, I said. Anderson's voice was full of easy enthusiasm. Hey, Calverly, I saw you. What a brilliant idea. I don't know what you mean, I lied. Oh, don't be so modest. Channel 36B, the blue magnolia, the back of the bar and the classic hat scene. You were just sitting there taking a drink. It was brilliant. Didn't I say it was brilliant, dear? You did, dear, said a voice in the background. I shuddered as I recognized the tones of Emerald Rainbow, Anderson's wife. I gave a cautious reply. I'm pleased you liked it, Anderson. How did you think of it? He said a little too quickly. Well, I began, but he interrupted me. Anderson never gives you time to answer his questions. Never mind. We think it's such a good idea. We're going to join you, me and Emerald Rainbow. No, Anderson, it's a quiet bar. The essence of that scene is that we are all, as human beings, alone. You join me at that table, you'll crowd it. You'll ruin the effect. There was a pause. I heard Anderson and Emerald Rainbow whispering together. They seemed to reach a conclusion. Anderson came back on the line. You know, Calverly, Emerald thinks you have a point. We'll have to think about this, but quickly. We've already booked a time machine for tomorrow morning. They're showing the Blue Magnolia tomorrow at 35 hours. Watch it. We'll be there. Anderson, no. Wait. There was a note of panic in my voice, but it was too late. Anderson had already hung up. I slumped forward in my chair, my head in my hands at the enormity of what I'd done. Nobody is more convinced of Anderson's talent than Anderson. He thinks he has discerning taste in movies. Odd that it never expresses itself until he's read the reviews. The next night, I was in the entertainment tank half an hour before the movie. Just me, half a bottle of Irish whiskey, a block of feta cheese, some black olives, and a terrible sense of foreboding. I ate the cheese and spat the olive stones into a little glass dish that danced in the reflected flicker of the projectors. The film started at thirty-five. I was tense, sipping at the whiskey and refilling my glass, sipping and refilling. The movie progressed normally, and I relaxed. Maybe Anderson had changed his mind. His fad seldom lasted. Maybe it would be okay. I should have known better. The movie came to the hat scene. Bogart and Hepburn were standing at the bar, gazing at each other. Cary Grant speaks softly from his chair. You've got to choose. The camera pans slowly around the room, taking in Grant, Hepburn, and Bogart. If you look carefully, you can see me sitting alone at a table in the background, sipping whiskey and looking kind of world-weary. The camera pans back to Grant and then across to Anderson and his wife. Anderson is drinking a cocktail with umbrellas in it. Both of them are grinning at the camera. The phone started ringing. My eyes still glued to the screen. I snatched up the receiver in anger. There could be no doubt who it was. Anderson! I shouted. Can you see us? There, on the table, in the middle. Do you see us? Subtle, don't you think? Subtle? Anderson, you... you moron! Thinking back, this was unfair. It was actually quite subtle for Anderson. There was a pause. When he spoke again, he sounded hurt and indignant. You're just jealous. 
Emerald Rainbow thought the cocktail was a great touch. Emerald Rainbow would. Don't you think so? It had blue curacao in it. Because the film is called The Blue Magnolia, called Emerald Rainbow in the background. I found myself speechless. My mouth moved silently as Anderson resumed speaking. They're showing it again tomorrow on 5B at 26 hours. Look out for us. He hung up before I could speak. The door announced there was someone outside. I answered it to find Susie, the woman from Timex Swatch, standing there, holding out the blue crackly box. You phoned me fifteen minutes from now, she explained. You know how it works, don't you? Yes, you showed me this afternoon. I haven't got there yet, she said and gave a little grimace. We're rushed off our feet at the moment. Oh, I would have thought you had all the time you needed, I said absently, taking the box from her. I pressed the button and concentrated until the red light came on. Okay, said Susie. All done? Why can I never remember going back, I said. You don't actually go back in time, said Susie. You just move across to another reality where what you thought about actually took place. Actual time travel costs a lot more. I looked confused. Susie straightened herself and half-closed her eyes as she recited her sales pitch. Timex Swatch offers a range of products tailored to meet the demanding lifestyle of the modern consumer. We have determined that model X46 best meets your needs. This model makes use of the quantum uncertainty model to provide a range of universe choices appropriate to your situation. I shook my head, still confused. Susie faltered for a moment. She closed her eyes fully, trying to recall a lecture from her induction course, no doubt. Well, it's like this. Schrodinger's cat shows that situations can arise where you have a cat that is both alive and dead at the same time. Obviously that can't happen. It doesn't make sense. It is far more probable that the universe splits in two every time an event with multiple outcomes is about to occur. Are you sure? I said, frowning. It didn't sound very likely to me. Oh, yes, she said, nodding seriously. I mean, it stands to reason. It's far more likely that there are millions of new universes forming every second than for a cat not to exist until you look at it. That's the whole basis of time travel. I didn't understand this, and she knew it. She smiled and shrugged her shoulders with a delicious creak of red leather. Got to go. See you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. I said. I watched as she walked away around the corner, and then the thought occurred to me. Tomorrow? Surely she meant this afternoon. The classic hat scene. The eternal triangle. A woman must choose between two good men, and she must choose the wrong man. They all know it. They all feel sympathy for Bogart, who must allow his duty to come before his personal feelings. You've got to choose. Hepburn never acted so well as in that scene. Those dark, confused eyes, the panic and the pain. Bogart is as world-weary and knowing as only he can be. I'm sitting at my table, drinking my Jack Daniels, a drunk in a bar, oblivious to the scene around him. Grant is wearing the look of a man who has won and wishes he hadn't, a pyrrhic victory. A bamboo screen stands in front of a table, cutting two imbeciles off from view. My doing. Bogart stands by the door, by the hat stand. Hell, I can't find my hat. It's hanging by the door, calls a voice from behind the screen. Anderson! You can see the surprise on my face. There, on the screen. 
Bogart is a true professional. He ignores the voice. Grant grits his teeth. We'll mail it. There's no need, says the voice from behind the screen. It's right next to him. It's the nice brown one she bought him in Mallorca, remember? It's there by my wife's red beret. The phone started ringing. I was too shocked to answer it. Bogart had just taken his hat and was walking out of the door, a dazed expression on his face. The scene was ruined. The film was ruined. Anderson would pay for this. Every movie ever made is shown every day. Every song recorded, every painting, every book is displayed in some way. The entertainment corporations make sure that they are pumped into entertainment tanks in strict rotation every 24 hours. All of them. From the sublime to the ridiculous, the culture of the last 20 centuries is constantly broadcast to the world. Are we any richer for the experience? No, not when morons such as Anderson call me in the middle of the night and say, Did you like it? I think it gives the scene more... poignancy. Like it? I shouted back. You've ruined the whole scene. You've destroyed the meaning of the film. I improved it. It needs a happy ending. What? I squeaked. I took a few deep breaths to allow my voice to return to normal, and then began, very patiently, to explain. Anderson, the whole point of the film is that sometimes life is hard. Sometimes the right decision to make is the one that makes us unhappy, but we go ahead and make it anyway because it's just that, the right decision. The film lays out the best and the worst of the human condition in ninety glorious minutes. The ending is supposed to be unhappy. Oh, no, said Anderson cheerfully. You always need a happy ending. Anderson, you arrogant moron! What gives you the right to change the original concept? Oh, come on, said Anderson. It is the duty of every modern artist to improve on the past. Only by constant revision can a work of art eventually achieve perfection. Do you think you are the first person to use a time machine? They give us the opportunity to realize perfection even after the artist's death. To realize perfection with the benefit of modern enlightened viewpoints. Anderson, what the hell are you talking about? I'm going back again to complete my reconstruction of the Blue Magnolia. Emerald Rainbow will be with me. Listen! I shouted, but it was too late. He'd hung up. I held my head in my hands. Susie rubbed my shoulders sympathetically. She'd been sitting eating peanuts on my sofa for over an hour now, time machine at the ready. The Blue Magnolia showed on channel 17W at 46. It was unbelievable. You've got to choose. Hepburn's dark eyes full of tears. The camera begins to pan. Grant, Hepburn, Bogart, me. Bamboo screen hiding two buffoons. Bogart by the door. Oh, I can't find my hat. It's... <clears throat> that was me, thumping Anderson, just out of shot. We'll mail it. Cary Grant, of course. Don't go like this. I... I can explain. Hepburn's brown eyes are filled with tears of despair. She looks so lost, so unsure. She is probably wondering why Anderson's pet Labrador has just walked across the room, wagging its tail. No need, says Bogart, kicking at the dog. Why explain things to a man who's not there? There is a noise off camera as Emerald Rainbow hits me. 
I guess a man who lives his life alone is never really a part of the world, says Bogart. Anderson appears in the shot. Me and the wife are going by the airport, Mr. Bogart, he says. We'll give you a lift. There's no need, says Bogart. That's okay, it's not a problem, smiles Emerald Rainbow. Yes, it is, says Bogart through gritted teeth. Just ignore him, says Anderson. He's bound to be in a bad mood, considering. I am not in a bad fucking mood, shouts Bogart. He stomps out of the room. Anderson and Emerald Rainbow follow him. You can see me sitting at a table crying softly to myself when Anderson reappears. He grins at the room sheepishly. I just came to get the hat, he explains. He's forgotten it again. Me and Anderson slugged it out for a few more days, but my heart wasn't in it. The film was ruined, and no matter what I tried, it couldn't be fixed. It's been moved to the back of the schedules, to the most distant channels. No one wants to know any more. Anderson insists he is not to blame, that these things happen all the time. He says everything is in a constant state of flux since the invention of the reality reintegrators. I think he means the time machines. All I understand is that I'm trapped in a timeline where the blue magnolia is ruined. Susie tells me not to despair. There is a near infinite number of timelines where the film goes on as normal. And again, I haven't the money to reach them, unfortunately. Still, at least I get to see Susie now, which is some consolation. And as for Anderson, well, have you seen Star Wars? You know that bit at the end where they fly down the trench on the Death Star? If you look closely, you can see my car driving along the bottom. If you look very closely, you might be able to see Anderson running along in front of it. Love those old movies. Watching them reminds me of childhood Sunday evenings and Easter holidays. Don't know how I would feel about one of them getting messed up like that. Although, considering that that would prove the existence of time travellers, it wouldn't be half bad. But then, if there were time travellers, we wouldn't know anything about them because we wouldn't be aware of any other timelines, so... Right, getting a headache thinking about that. Let me move on to our final story for today. It is Tomorrow Tea by Laurel Winter. A delightful lady indeed. Laurel had what she describes as an eclectic education, including a one-room country grade school, a high school where there were 33 in her graduating class, credits in English, physics and psychology from Montana State, and numerous writing and art classes. She's hoping her novel Growing Wings gets a baby sister this year. You can visit her blog at laurelwinter.blogspot.com, the link, of course, on the F website. The story is read for you by Kim Mintz. With a background in theatre and an English degree that didn't lead to teaching or full-time novel writing, Kim is a professional voice actor who uses her diverse voice talents to give life to a wide range of commercial and narrative work. You can read more about her various projects on her website, kimmintzvoiceactor.com, and Farfetched Fables thanks her for her contribution. So, please allow me to present to you Tomorrow Tea by Laurel Winter. Tomorrow Tea by Laurel Winter Anzi woke me, 
Try this, she said, putting a cup to my mouth just as I exhaled a drained breath. Too hot, but my mouth barely noticed. Summer, I tasted. Being young, one of the wild cousins of mint. Sun filtered through green leaves. Oh, yes, I said, gulping down as much as I could before she took the cup away. She never let me have a whole cup of any tea. Just tastes, so I would never be satisfied. A good taster is never satisfied. What do you call it? She smiled. Seventh summer. Do you think that's right? Something that evokes childhood. Actually, I was thinking more of being eight, but I like the S's. Seventh summer. I tasted the name, too. In my sister's business, the brewing of names is almost as important as the brewing of teas. That's good. I coughed on the last word, and sister let me have another sip of summer tea. I held it in my mouth for a moment before I swallowed, savoring youth, wellness, warmth. When it was gone, though, I shivered. Poor darling, she said, pulling the green and gold afghan up to my chin and tucking me in. I shouldn't have wakened you, but the tea buyer is coming tomorrow, and I wanted to get this ready. Forgive me. I just nodded and closed my eyes. The afghan is one I made as a girl and stored in my wedding chest. Anzi fetched it a few years ago, shook out the cedar chips, brought it to my bed. Perhaps I should have called the box of hopeful belongings a funeral chest instead. Are you well enough to try another tea? Her voice poked a hole in the sleep that was forming around me. I opened my eyes again. Her long, gray hair was pent back haphazardly as usual. She envied my hair, I knew, soft silver curls. I kept it short because lying on a pillow all the time would tangle long hair. Enzi cut my hair for me. Sometimes I suspected she cut it crooked out of jealousy, but it still looked good. Hair was such a small thing to envy when she had everything else. Of course, dear sister, bring another tea. When she brought it, I could tell from the scent that was one of her dark teas. I almost refused, but she brought it up to my lips and firmly tipped the cup. If I didn't drink, it would spill on my afghan and the scent would be with me for days and the stain forever, or at least for as much of forever as I was going to be permitted to attend. I opened my lips and let the tea in. Bitter. Salted with tears. Cool as the earth at grave depth. But curiously, the flavor lightened as it passed through my mouth, the bitter and salt transforming into a soft, new flavor that kissed my tongue and evaporated, leaving pure, cool water to flow down my throat. She didn't ask me if I liked it. Does it work? Her fingers were nervous around the cup. It's called Beyond. I just nodded, too tired to compliment her further, too tired to taste another tea. I closed my eyes and let the sleep take me away from the bed and the tea and the sister with long gray hair. When I woke up, the tea buyer was there, tasting the new teas, getting reacquainted with a few old favorites he had almost forgotten. Ah, he said, I'll take as much night silk as you have. You'll take it if you give enough of the right things, said Anzi, her voice daring and teasing and coquettish, which, of course, the tea buyer didn't notice. He was young and strong and rakish, even though he wasn't handsome. What interest would he have in an old woman with untidy gray hair? I saw him through the sheer curtain that separated my room from the kitchen. 
He was sitting on the bench at the side of the table on the end farthest from my room. His expression stayed serious and businesslike. Oh, I'm sure I have plenty of things to trade. New silks, fine dried sea fish, sweet spices and sour. Something for your sister. He looked toward the curtain then, although I'm sure he couldn't see me in the darkened room. That's another thing my sister envies. The tea buyer always asks about me and sometimes gives me a small gift, usually a book. I cannot read the books any more. My hands tire, and my eyes, and my mind. But I still treasure the thought of the words I haven't read, what they might say. Anzi tossed her head. You'll have to have all that and more to go away with my fine new teas. Ah, so I hadn't slept through the tasting of the new teas. I inched myself up on the pillow to see better. Anzi set five stone jars on the table, warm from the oven, not too close to one another. Into each she put a pinch of new tea, then boiling water from the long-spouted kettle into the first jar and the last. I shuddered, knowing that would be the dark new tea, the one to drink cool. I wanted to taste it again, and yet I didn't. The tea buyer bent over the first stone jar and took in the aroma as it brewed. His eyes closed as he concentrated. When the tea was brewed to my sister's satisfaction, she put a net over a clean cup and poured the tea. I wondered, as always, how she could stand to hold the hot jars in her bare hands. But she is a brewer and has done it so many times she doesn't notice anymore just as the tea buyer doesn't notice when the tea is hot enough to scald a lesser tongue. While he was bringing the cup to his lips, she moved to the end of the table and poured the last cup to sit and cool. I could tell he was curious over this, for most of her teas are for drinking hot. His eyes followed her as she poured, but then he brought himself back to the cup in his hands. I like to try to predict which tea he is tasting by the expression on his face as it enters his mouth surprised, or pleased, or shocked, or whatever. This time there was just mild satisfaction, so I guessed Twilight Garden, which I found adequate, but a bit boring. I call this Twilight Garden, she said, when he didn't speak. Ah, he said, but no more, scooting down the bench to sit before the second jar. My sister frowned, erased the expression, and poured the second jar. This time it was seventh summer, and the tea buyer fell in love with it. Yes, yes, he said. I can sell this tea. He even allowed himself to take a second sip and a third. My sister waiting, looking smug, until he moved to the third jar. Coming home, it was, a mix of familiar and strange, and the fourth was rejoice. The tea are like both of them, although not as well as seventh summer. And then it was time for the last cup. My sister held her hand above the cup, checking the temperature. Wait she said. The tea buyer waited, sniffing the air above the cup for its dark aroma. I'm sure my sister let him wait longer than necessary to build his anticipation. He was at the nearest end of the bench now, just beyond the sheer curtain. I could smell the tea from my bed, or at least imagine that I did. My sister tested the temperature again, then curled her fingers around the cup and gave it to him. I saw the bitterness bite him, the sad saltiness. And then his eyes widened at the sudden touch of flavor that vanished even as he met it. He looked toward the curtain. Perhaps he saw me lying in the darkness, ready to die. Beyond, whispered my sister. 
He did not take a second taste, but nodded to her to acknowledge the power of the tea. My sister cleared the jars away while he went out for his goods. She hurried, spilling some of the seventh summer tea. It smelled like life itself. After she wiped it up, she peeked around the edge of the curtain and saw me lying awake. Did you see? she whispered. He loved them all. Except the twilight garden, I said. He won't buy any of that. She sniffed. He'll buy some. Now why don't you nap for a while? You're bound to be tired. I wanted to see the trading. No, I said, although I was. Open the shutter for me. She did, although she clearly didn't want to. When the shutter was open, one could see in through the door curtain as easily as out. Whenever I was awake, the tea buyer always came in for a moment and talked with me and gave me a gift. Anzi banged the shutter to one side and left the room. The door curtain was still swaying when he entered the kitchen with his bulging pack. Greetings, he called to me. I hope we did not wake you with our dealings out here. No, I said. No, I was awake. He smiled and thumped the pack down on the clear table. I have something for you. Don't bother giving her a book, said my sister, her voice cold. She hasn't read the last ones yet, and won't, ever. The tea buyer looked at me and saw the truth of her words. Oh, it isn't a book, he said, although I could tell he was lying. I brought you something else this time. I could see him thinking fast. First, I must do my trading with your sister, though. Her face flushed, and that was gift enough for me. He had business dealings with my sister. He didn't have to talk to me. She was angry, so she didn't trade well. The tea buyer tried to tease her out of it, but she didn't let go. I saw the point where his lips tightened up, and he decided to use her anger against her. She was too angry to see. I felt a hollow pleasure watching them. The tea buyer was getting the advantage because she couldn't think well with the anger in her head. And the envy. There is something to be said for being envied. But she was getting less dried fish, which I love, and less of everything else as well. I tried to think of a way to help her, but I was so tired, and I had to save the energy to stay awake for my present. I saw the small book that he had been planning to give me. He whisked it back into his pack as soon as it turned up. Was he lingering over the wares as he traded, deciding what would be my gift? He did not take any of the Twilight Garden. He took fifty packets, each of coming home and rejoice, all of the seventh summer, and all but one of the beyond, as well of a good assortment of her older teas. For this he gave her silks and spices and dried fish and meats and fruits and some pressed paper and deep blue ink, but not as much of any of them as she deserved for her creations. She just wanted him to pack up and go away, I could tell, and he began to do so. He packed up the teas in tight bundles and placed them in the far interior, where there was no chance of them getting wet even if the pack fell in a river. He packed up the extra fruits and meats and the rolls of cloth, except for one. He put one in his pocket, and my heart leapt. And I was right. After he had his pack tied, he came through the curtain and sat right on the edge of the bed. You can't lie there reading all the time, he said. It will spoil your eyes. He reached into the pocket and pulled out a piece of silk. Blue and blue and blue, a dozen different colors of blue and worked with threads of silver. This will go with your blue eyes and your silver hair. He actually lifted my head up with warm hands and tied the silk loosely around my neck, 
with the ends trailing down to my hands so I could feel it between my fingers. I couldn't do more than smile my thanks. Sleep crept over me and wrapped me in silk. When I woke up, the tea buyer was gone. Anzi had put away all the goods she bartered for and was sitting at the table creating a new tea with my silk tied around her head, hiding her dull, gray hair. She looked almost beautiful, with the silk accenting her blue eyes. It's mine, I said, trying to sit up. She looked at me through the curtain and untied the silk. Of course. You were asleep. I didn't think you'd mind. She came in, draped the silk over me like a blanket. I minded. You'll have it soon enough when I am dead. There was a silence deeper than her darkest tea. We did not talk about my dying. It had been happening so slowly for so long, since we were girls, really. Now it was near, and I knew it, and so did she. She had brewed it into her latest tea. I gathered the silk in my hands. Let me have it as long as I am able, my last gift from the tea buyer. I was tired again, my eyelids falling shut as she nodded. My time was spent in sleep, in tiny moments of waking, in sips of tea and my sister's hand stroking my face with the edge of the silk, when she wasn't bathing me or changing the bedclothes, or working in the kitchen. She was brewing a new tea, something difficult. Sometimes I would open my eyes for a few seconds, just in time to see her dump her attempts thus far and start over. Sometimes she would be crying. And then she woke me, my head held in the crook of her arm, the other hand holding a cup of tea. Taste this, she said. I made it for you. She held it to my lips. Taste it. The new tear seared my lips too hot again. It burned my tongue with promise, a flavor that built up and up and up until you knew there was no end to it, no end to anything. Sweet and sour and bitter and salt, all of them together, but mainly sweet. I asked a question with my eyes. Tomorrow tea, she said. I call it tomorrow tea. He'll buy it, I whispered. She gave me another sip, and when I had swallowed, another. The taste built forever in my mouth. Cities that would never fall. Infinite gardens. The wind and the sea. She helped me drink the entire cup, leaving me full of tomorrow. Where the silk, I murmured. I moved one hand to try and give it to her, but the effort made me sleep again. I did see the tea buyer again for just an instant. Did I hang on to life until he came again? Was I already dead? Did the tomorrow tea give me a glimpse of time yet to come? The tea buyer sat beside my sister at the long table. She wore the silk on her head. They both drank cool, dark, bitter tea that turned to water in the back of their throats and left a fleeting taste of wonder. There was a curtain between us. And I was there, and then gone, with the taste of tomorrow carrying me into something other than sleep as my eyes closed. The end. I have no words. What a great story. Thank you to Laurel for sharing that one. We'll be hearing more from this lady, believe me. And that brings us to the end of another show. 
Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but no changing or selling it. I hope you enjoyed the show. How many times did you refresh that drink then? I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then, take it easy and keep smiling. Namaste. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.